Let's talk. Docs. Hey, welcome to Let's Talk Docs, the show where we talk about documentation, open source, and tech, and the intersection of the three. Today, we are talking to Tom Johnson. Tom is a tech writer in the Seattle area. He's worked at both startups and big tech for the past 17 years. He has a blog called iratherbewriting.com, which he's been actively writing on since 2006. He also has an API doc course at idvalibewriting.com that provides a lot of free information on how to write API documentation. Welcome, Tom. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for the intro. We're super excited to have you here today. I've been a fan of your work for a long time and, and we've been in, in kind of various documentation related circles. And yeah, what we wanted to talk to you about today was your kind of API quality checklist rubric. I don't know exactly the right words to use for it. I think checklist is maybe the easiest, but can you just tell us a little bit more about what prompted you to do that? And it's kind of part of your larger API course. But yeah, I just want to talk a little bit about kind of the the initial creation and, and what you were thinking. Yeah, yeah. So these checklists are just quality lists about what makes for good developer documentation or what makes for a good developer portal and API documentation. A couple of years ago, I was teaching some API workshops in person to people. And a frequent question was a request for some kind of checklist on quality. A lot of times, actually, editors were attending these workshops and they would get a lot of API documentation from engineers and others. And they really weren't that familiar with it. And they wanted some kind of like quick checklist to see if it checks all the boxes and they wanted to know what they should be looking for. That got me thinking about what makes for good developer documentation. How do you describe and define it? And there's obviously been a longstanding topic in the field of technical communication about documentation quality. This is nothing new. People have been discussing since the beginning, what is it about documentation that makes it good? Like, how do you say this is good documentation versus this is poor documentation? The pretty existential question, I feel like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And in fact, at a previous job, one of my managers would ask occasionally, he'd say, this is great that you're publishing this documentation, but how do you know if it's any good? And it was like a pretty tough question to answer. How do you know if your documentation is good? Sure, you can rely on some feedback from users and maybe you get comments here and there that give you an indication. But that feedback tends to be very small, reflective of only like a certain part of docs, not the whole experience. You know, what is it that, that you could say, hey, our documentation is good because of X, Y, and Z. So that was the initial thinking also. I was trying to find a way to quantify our work. Let's say a writer comes into a company and you work on the docs for an entire year. How do you then, when it comes around to your performance evaluation or other yearly assessments, how do you demonstrate that, hey, I made a difference. I improved the quality of the documentation because I did X, Y, and Z. There's really not a list like that. And people have been also interested in just judging and understanding documentation quality there was some recent Pronovix developer awards. Lots of people submit links to their developer portals. They want them evaluated and assessed by a third-party objective set of jurors. And they want to know, is my documentation good? Is it bad? Tell me and why. So 
that's just a little thinking behind like why develop these checklists or criteria of what makes for good API documentation. Huge service to the tech community because when you go to the regular like tech shop or company, they complain about their documentation. And for a very long time, we just didn't have adjectives beyond engineers wrote it or it doesn't read very well or the documentation is bad. We really needed a checklist and to quantify more of why the documentation was quote unquote bad. So thank you very much for the API list that you've created and all the resources you've created. You've mentioned the Pronovix, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, developer portal awards. Could you say more about that? That's also an attempt to assess the information quality with uh, developer portals. What approach did they take when they were evaluating these knowledge centers? This is quite a cool thing that Pronovix does. They're a company that helps people build out developer portals and so on. And they have a yearly awards contest or whatever, and people can submit their developer portal to be evaluated in different categories, like for reference documentation or onboarding or as an internal developer portal or the editorial expertise. They have around 20 different categories and they're really just trying to celebrate excellence and innovation when they see it. In many ways, it gives you a lot of ideas to see how other people are approaching things. The mechanics of the whole judgment process around like ranking and sorting and identifying winners is mundane. I learned that it's very easy to distinguish between a developer portal that's obviously bad versus one that's obviously good. But once you narrow down a list of obviously good developer portals, it's very difficult to say, oh, yes, this is better than this other one without being an actual user going through the tasks and understanding the content. Please tell us what is obviously bad in terms of the developer portal. It's kind of one of those things where you know it when you see it. You get stuck with navigation. There's no clear sense of what the product is or there's a, a lack of like structure and sense of like tasks and how to implement something or the developer documentation is incomplete doesn't describe a lot of things. Yeah, we had four jury members and our group looked at reference docs and onboarding and, and a couple other categories. You can look at a developer portal for five minutes and give it a thumbs up or thumbs down. You could spend hours looking at one, but like nobody has that time. The sad reality is that a lot of it does come down to presentation. If somebody presents information well, like it looks good, it's got a nice balance, it looks like it has good amount of detail, but good graphics as well. And the nice navigation, the information itself could be garbage. It's hard to really assess that. But if it has that sense of a good presentation, curb appeal, and it seems like it's uh, addressing content needs for the audience, we tended to put it in an obviously good category. When it comes to curb appeal, that's also something that's really hard to pin down. Can you tell us what are the characteristics of good, quote unquote, curb appeal when it comes to developer documentation? Definitely, if you can balance images, diagrams, some kind of conceptual illustrations with text, I think that's a huge win. One of my challenges as a writer is I will overdo the, the word count, the word content. And I was sharing some content with colleagues the other week that was like a conceptual introduction to something. And one of my colleagues said, nobody wants to read long walls of text, Tom. And I looked at it and I was like 10 paragraphs with nothing else. And I'm like, okay, fine. 
So some of the developer portals that I really liked that had what I say, describe as curb appeal, they had just some nice graphics that sort of were, and I don't just mean decorative graphics, like illustrative graphics that were architectural diagrams or high level workflows or other conceptual illustrations that tried to demonstrate the points. It gives it a nice balance to content. Now that's only one aspect. There's a lot of details around curb appeal. The other major kind of thing that just jumped out at me, and I don't really know how people solve this, honestly, but the websites or the developer portals that integrated reference content with the conceptual content into one seamless experience really had a, a much better, I don't know, appeal to me at least. Problem is so much of the reference documentation, regardless of the API, whether it's open API or Java API or something else, is usually generated through a documentation generator and it's its own output that then is separate from the conceptual info and trying to like interweave the two can be very challenging. Some people managed to to pull it off in a way that was very impressive. I don't really know what their process was, but definitely that was a that was an aspect that got me thinking. Do you mind doing some name dropping? Who are the winners? And yeah, you like know, when I'm gonna, for example, uh, the documentation, who should we look up point. here? If you go to the Pronovix Developer Portal Awards, put a link there, you can see the winners. Uh, you can see like the ones that won 15 different categories and I saw yeah. like different runners up. And yeah, so there's definitely a lot of, I, I do agree that, yeah, this like landing page of all these that were past uh, the good enough test to be given an award is probably a great place to start. And especially if there's someone who's in a similar industry or, or solving a similar problem, I really like the ones particularly around how to like integrate a business model with the API or, or some of those other ones that I thought was like a really interesting framing on API docs. Yeah, for sure. It is fascinating to break down the developer portals into these different categories and say, we thought you did a great job with the reference docs. That's no comment on 19 other different characteristics of a developer portal that could be measured and so on. But at least for this one, we think you're a top notch kind of thing. Honestly, I wanted to have top 10 say, hey, these are the top 10 ones, but that goes against the grain of having a winner and so on. But definitely peruse the links there. I think Played was the one that we chose in the reference category and onboarding, it was like platform OS and so on. But overall, it just gives you a lot of great examples. And, and obviously every company has different products, different audiences and needs and information challenges. There's such variety in this space about how to pull all that off information architecture, UX, and so on. It's a very different world from maybe what TechCom was 20 years ago, where most people generated out content from help authoring tools. And you could say, oh yeah, this is generated from Madcap Flare. This is generated from Adobe something. It's much more of a product now. Like the documentation portal is a product that one or more teams at an organization is working on. And yeah, like it needs to be integrated. You can't just, yeah, if you throw some like Java doc or just a default kind of API output, right? It really does break up that workflow, right? You lose your navigation, you lose a lot of stuff. One of the things that we were, as you were talking earlier, really made me think that like, you know, you mentioned you could only go and judge these sites for a few minutes at a time. And I think that's actually incredibly, or, you know, at least to start, you do a five minute good or bad test, and then you dive a little deeper into the good ones. That's what users are going to do as well. Like the first impression I go when I go to a site, I really can tell if people have put a lot of effort into it. Is this something that has had the care and is this something that a team worked on or is this something that just people have been throwing up in, in their spare time? And I think it's really interesting that, yeah, you were able to kind of become almost a user 
of those documentation sites or portals. And so I'm curious a little bit more, like going back to the quality discussion, how do you get that kind of user's perspective when you're evaluating the quality? Like, did you have a a specific user in mind for these awards or was it, how did that kind of all come together? Yeah. So that's a definite shortcoming in the jury process. You really don't have access to user feedback or I think what everybody has to remember when you're looking at documentation is that usually, at least for the tech writer perspective, I have to remember that I'm not the user. I'm not the person in this business domain. I'm not implementing this product. And so maybe I have a question, like maybe something doesn't make sense to me, but it could make sense to the target user and trying to understand those cases where the writer made a decision and said, you know what, my users don't need to know about this topic. They just are more interested in how to implement it. Whereas if I come to it, I'm like, what the heck is this widget for? What? Why would I want to use that? And oh, the docs don't even tell me, they don't even give me a conceptual foundational background about this whole business domain. Oh, they're terrible. No, I mean, that's unfair judgment. And so much of like quality is wrapped around the user. And this is where the whole problem of tech comm continually settles or comes back to again and again. We're writing content for a user that we can't see, we can't interact with. We rarely get feedback about. I mean, imagine if you're a teacher and there was a wall between you and all the students in your classroom and you had to teach, but you could never see if the students were learning or had questions or were like confused. You couldn't gather any of that feedback. Like how good would the class be? It would probably be terrible. This is partly why Zoom classrooms failed often for teachers is they need that audience feedback so that they can give real-time adjustments and address questions when they see confused looks. We don't have that. And so it makes it very difficult to create information and craft it to address user pain points. I mean, obviously there are ways to get the user perspective. One is by interacting with people who do interact with users. I meet every other week with teams that interact with users and I try to ask them, what are the trending pain points or what are the questions they're having? And in the ticket logs, what are people asking and so on? But even that The sort of feedback that often comes in is a trickle compared to what I think would be most useful to the writer. You're making a thousand judgments when you create a long documentation set, making a thousand judgments. And if you're not intimately familiar with the user's perspective and questions and pain points and frictions and key use cases, then like it's going to be wrong a lot of the times. But that's just the challenge of writing docs. I have a question about interacting with users. Let's say to your new startup, you have your CTO, you have your CEO who is slash COO, so many acronyms, I'm sorry. And you're writing documentations, but you have a team of three people. How do you go out and interact with users? What is the best thing to do if you're an early stage startup, you have limited resources, but you really want to know your user's pain point? How do you go about that? I think definitely if you're in a small startup, there's a lot more opportunity to interact with users than at a big tech company where people are very wary about just random people interacting with users and and overloading them. Find those interaction points that already exist, especially if you have support groups that are trying to resolve things. I think a good central metaphor for docs is to focus on user pain points and try to identify where those pain points manifest themselves. It's usually in some kind of support request, ticket logs. You could also add 
feedback forms and widgets on the site, but those are hard to do well. But at any rate, if you go through tickets, this is something that always blows my mind in companies. Occasionally I'll go diving into tickets, reading through them to see what kind of things people are working on. And about 75% of the time, the tickets are related to actual like bugs in the software or product. Something is not working and you're like, yeah, that's not my problem. I'm focusing on the docs. But a lot of times in those tickets, there'll be questions from users like the user didn't understand how to implement this feature correctly. And so it failed for them. Why didn't they understand how to implement it correctly? Maybe the docs weren't very clear about that. Or maybe they say the user forgot to implement a prerequisite or something. The thing that blows my mind is that like the support team rarely reaches out to docs to try to fix the source and the root of the problem by adding this information into the documentation. I don't know why there's often a gap, but there's definitely usually a gap. If you can get the people who are managing tickets to somehow check a box that says docs needed or something, that can definitely streamline things because some of these ticketing systems are just overwhelming. You get hundreds of tickets a day. No tech writer really has time to filter that meticulously, but I would recommend to stay in touch with ticket logs and people who interact with the users and really try to get information from them. That's really interesting. So the takeaway I got from your answer is number one, it seems like if you're a small company, you actually have an advantage over bigger companies because you have more interaction with the user. Plus one, if you're a small company that is working to your advantage in terms of knowing your user. And also in terms of if you're a technical writer, just really having access to the QA department and knowing what people's pain points are and having that information find its way into the documentation. I have to say, like I work with companies and help them improve their documentation. And you do see that trend of the QA department working directly with documentarians. So there are companies moving forward that do see this trend and that are like heeding that advice. Yeah. And let me add one more aspect to this. A lot of times in support groups that help troubleshoot issues and so on, one of the problems is that their systems aren't integrated with doc systems. So when there's like a, an issue and they want to add a knowledge base article around it, that knowledge base article is completely in another universe from the documentation system. And the two don't reference each other. You know, that's a problem. I don't really know how we overcome that, but yeah, it's part of this, the organizational silos. It's not just word lines, it's tool lines and content repo lines and so on. One of the things I've actually found in kind of the, the jobs I've had is looking at the like auto replies that the, the support team has as well. Because there's a lot of the support tools, you know, there's knowledge bases, but then there's also usually just like little canned replies that <laughs> that they're able to send with a few button presses. And I often find that's the like highest level of common user requests. And so if there's, a, if there's anything in there, but yeah, no, it's a really interesting that that kind of relationship between docs and support. And I think in a lot of these larger organizations, something like developer relations is another place where they're out interacting a little more formally with the community and trying to, to engage with those teams and, and really build on their understanding of the product and the user. That's a super important part of kind of making sure you actually understand what your user is thinking. Coming back to the small versus big shop setup, in small startups, like you, you can know the support people and the business dev people, and maybe you all sit in one room and it's very easy to communicate. You just shout over to your buddy to see if, hey, is this trending? But in a big organization, 
you can still figure it out. It just takes a lot more understanding about what are the different groups? What are the bugs? There was a bug I was trying to chase down the other day on a product that I don't work on, but I just wanted to know because I was experiencing the bug and I was like, which team is it? And it wasn't too difficult to find once I landed on the actual bug in the giant database and reached out to the team and so on. But definitely understanding all the different groups in an organization, who to contact and how to reach out to them is key if you want to gather all this information and make the documentation have these fixes. Speaking about feedback, could you tell us the feedback that you've gotten on your API checklist? Yeah, admittedly, this is not a hugely popular part of my API docs. In part, my checklists, they're too comprehensive. When you start to define things, what does it mean for docs to be clear, to be findable, to be readable? There's so many different aspects. And I think I had 75 different characteristics. I was really trying to make things concrete, tangible, actionable. Comprehensive list. Yeah. But really the feedback is, hey, can you whittle this down to top 10, like a shorter checklist and so on. And the other feedback, I was really trying to like put some metrics around this because I mentioned I wanted to have like a way to quantify improvement. That really didn't work. I think really what this checklist is, is a way to interrogate your docs and to come up with ideas, to look at them in a new light and say, how findable are our topics? And do we have versions indicated and so on? But yeah, trying to score it all and weight the scores and come up with a grade and so on doesn't really work. And I don't think many people care about that. But so shorter checklists, no quantification. And I also had a first level checklist and a second level checklist because I realized a lot of these questions you can't answer about documentation quality until you're very familiar with the docs. For example, are key user journeys documented or you know, are there code samples that kind of illustrate how to implement things? Like those can be difficult to answer until you've been working with something for six plus months. So trying to divide the checklist into a, hey, here's what you can investigate when you're brand new versus after six months to a year. I separated those out, but I think I should just have one checklist and just put little disclaimers that say, hey, you may not be able to really evaluate this until your doc's a lot better. I have to say that I've used your checklist on several projects and oh yeah, they're great. One of the checklists, this is a second level checklist. We actually turned it into a spreadsheet as a way to click off, as a way for us to check the API documentation quality. And there are several companies that where if they need to check the quality of their documentation, like your website is the first place that they go. Like you've really started a movement and a conversation about how do we go about talking about API documentation. (laughs) Number one, like I said before, I'm a fan And I'm at this point, (laughs) just telling you how much I appreciate this. Oh, that's cool to hear. Yeah. Yeah. And I imagine it's helpful to have some kind of like criteria from a third party as well. Sometimes I feel like when I use these checklists, if somebody says, you know, where are you coming up with these ideas? And be like, oh, my head, my observations (laughs) in the industry. It's like, there's nothing. I mean, there are some works that are more formal. Actually, I referenced one on the homepage of this course. I can't remember the name. Anna starts with a T. She's got a document, but it's one of these docs that you have to buy. And in Europe, there's a lot of like quality committees through the, I'm going to forget the name, ISA organization. I can't remember what it's called, but they do have a lot of criteria that defines software quality and so on. And I think there was an attempt at one point to make like an API documentation 
ISA list of best practices or criteria and so on, but it's not so common in, in U S companies. And I was like, what company is going to pay for some kind of asset? Like they should be available online for free just so people can find and use them. Yeah, I definitely love the kind of open source ethos that in, embodied in that it is something that that is super interesting. And I just kind of reading through, I hadn't run into this before because I don't do a lot of work on APIs in my day job. I'm much more kind of at the developer lower level, I guess, not web APIs, but more like, you know, Python APIs or something. But I really just loved it as a way to check for blind spots. Not as much something I'm going to go through and grade my docs necessarily, but just as someone who's a little bit outside of this. It's if I'm trying to put together, honestly, I thought this was helpful for normal doc sites, not just APIs. I think a lot of it is very relevant, you know, search quality, integration of the different kind of pieces, lots of good stuff in here, code samples. I think it's very easy to get trapped in one perspective when you're only thinking about quality in a, a certain very kind of myopic way. And this is a great way to expand your perspective on the quality or, or places that you're, you have blind spots. So yeah, I thought it was really useful. And I want to start sending it to people. Yeah, like in a work context of some of our clients or whatever. It's like, here's what good looks like. Consider all these things and it will give you a, a head start. <laughs> when I started at my current work, I did put all that into Word Doc or Google Doc and made some notes about each one, trying to just give a baseline measurement. Where are we at with this? How is the search? And so on. And I was just going back over a year later, the same kind of notes, revisiting things. And some hadn't changed at all. Others, we've made a lot of improvements. But yeah, it was kind of nice to have some kind of list to look at docs and see all these different angles that are often ignored. And I, I had lots of ideas as well for ways to improve. So thanks for that feedback. Can we take a turn in the conversation? Tom, I want to know your origin story. Like how in the heck did you end up writing about documentation and keeping a blog about knowledge centers that you started in 2006? What is your origin story? How did you get started? I've asked myself this and I get this question a lot. Why do you write so much? Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but I think in high school, I like to keep journals. For some reason, started writing in a journal and I had this habit. I kept it up in college, just journal writing. When the web came out and the blogosphere started taking off, I was a webmaster for the STC Suncoast chapter. And I was like, let's make a group blog. And I changed our site to be on WordPress, trying to get people to contribute. After a while, I realized I was the only one really writing on it. And I said, let me just make my own blog. I don't want to have a group blog that's only got my own little articles. So I started making my own blog and... I think I find a lot of value in writing about my current experiences. It's similar to the whole journal idea. It's a great way to think about what's going on and to organize my thoughts. Writing is a tool for thinking. Sometimes I'll just ask a bunch of questions and try to answer them in a brainstorming doc. And usually I stumble across some insights that I was like, oh, that's kind of a neat way of looking at things. That's part of the value I get from writing and any sort of activity that you find meaningful that you can connect with on some kind of emotional level is something that you'll continue. And why did I focus on TechCom? Well, the reality is that it's just what my career has been on. So it's easy to focus on the things that we are doing for most of the day. I have been trying to pivot some of my writing focus to be more centered on the type of writing that I want to do. 
I ended up getting an MFA in creative writing, creative nonfiction. So you can tell that I enjoy writing and I want to do some kind of writing. I've always wanted to do more essayistic writing. And so I, I like to choose a theme and I want to write a dozen articles on that theme and have that as my kind of yearly cadence or so on. I think that is the sort of writing I want to do. I don't know really why I ended up creating a API documentation course. I started that when people were asking me to create some sessions and so on for a, a consulting company that did, they, they would hire out tech writers and so on. So I was training them, it's building up content and I just added to it. And especially when I looked at my analytics and I was like, holy crap, like 75% of the people who come to my site, they're interested in API documentation topics, not like blog topics. So I'm adding more and more to that, but I definitely want to pursue more like theme-based essays. I do have a longer life story that I will point you to as a link in a post. I read that life story. It is fascinating. I won't get into it, but it's a good read. So everyone who's listening... Find, to this, find it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, it'll be in the show notes. I actually have a question. You mentioned that you received an MFA in nonfiction writing. Has that helped you? And would you recommend that as a path for people aspiring to become technical writers? No, I totally wouldn't recommend it as a path. However, I do believe it It has been helpful. I learned a few things about myself. I learned what I think is the basic recipe for good writing. I learned about myself that I'm like infinitely creative. I, I can fill a blank page. It, I really enjoy that. I like the process of inquiry and asking questions and, and discovering things. I once met somebody who was starting a blog and they're like, yeah, I've got 28 ideas for posts. But after that, I have no idea. I don't think I can continue. And I was like, man, you're going to have to have a lot more than that. But the other aspect of what makes for good writing, I was in the nonfiction program. So not writing fiction. It's totally not my strength at all. I, and neither poetry have no skills there. But nonfiction, I think at least the creative nonfiction recipe is really just a balancing the personal and the more conceptual or ideas that aren't so personal. And that balance of like personal and non-personal and by non-personal, I'm like the voices of others, what have others written or, or said about the topic and so on makes for really engaging content. I think the way the sort of content world unfolded is that I got my MFA in 2003 or a long time ago before the blogosphere took off. And when the blogosphere took off, all of a sudden you started seeing a lot of personal experiences and narratives online, which actually aligned a lot with the stuff that I really connected to in college. I remember reading a book of essays by Philip Lopate and Joseph Epstein. I was like, I love this writing, this sort of meandering intellectual voice and so on. It's fun to read. And really there's all kinds of content online and there's blogs that are really dumb and just mental diarrhea on there. And then there's really engaging, thoughtful, deep content. It's like the whole spectrum of content. You have so many possibilities. And so, yeah, my MFA did help shape a lot of my, the way I like to write and gave me a platform to write. And that certainly has opened many doors in my career. But for people who aren't bloggers, but are skilled technical writers and have no online presence, they can be very competitive in the job market as well, especially if you've got a great portfolio of samples. A lot of people don't care. A lot of people that I work with, they could care less about reading anything online related to tech comm, and that's totally fine. 
but yeah, it's definitely helped me maybe stay engaged in the career as well. I feel like it's, there's always things that are interesting to explore, whereas some people get bored of the career and move on to other pastures. Yeah, that's always been one of my kind of worldviews with kind of the Right to Docs community is, yeah, trying to build relationships and friendships in in your professional space makes your, your job way more rewarding, especially if those people all don't work with you, right? But they're, they're out at other companies, they have different perspectives, you're able to bounce ideas and share knowledge you've each learned. I mean, you've you're an extreme example of working in public, but definitely just engaging with the ecosystem and uh, with the community, I think is wonderful just to, for your kind of to your point, right? Your happiness and your, your willingness to stick with it and have a really fulfilling community and network in your career. So I think it's a great perspective. Yeah. And I know you're a champion of the community and helping build that interaction. I mean, you've created this, right? That Ox community that is pretty tremendous. So many people find a sense of belonging and colleagues and so on and find helpful info, but also just uh, feeling a sense of belonging in place and, and like, hey, I'm, I'm part of this larger community it is tremendously influential. So you've done amazing work there. Well, and, and it's, it's also the work of the people, right? You know, I can only connect so many things, but it's really the connection between everyone else that provides all the value. And yeah, no, it's been really exciting to see people that also share these ethos around openness and connection. And it's a great way to have a professional world. So yeah, I don't know. It's just it's always exciting to hear more people kind of sharing that passion. Oh, Eric, you're being so modest. Like right the docs. It's an international community of people who are really passionate about writing, finding them each other. And that didn't exist before the doc. So that's really big and meaningful. And I would argue that it existed in, in other forms and we were just able to change what it looked like a little bit or, or change the shape. But yeah, I, mean, I think people have been connecting across these spaces, but I think similar to kind of Tom's point around coming into the world at the point of blogging and that kind of being influential, right? I do think just coming when the internet was connecting everyone and everyone was getting online. And I think it was a lot of that is just being at the right place at the right time as well, right? We have the technology to to connect globally now. If you were trying to do this 20 years ago, I don't, what are you doing? Like long distance calls or? <laughs> there were different groups, but I think the amount of connection that you see on Write the Docs, it was very hard to find previously. And once again, like it's the technology, right place, right time, but it's also like the person who's able to execute on these ideas and on these opportunities. This was part of the cool reason why the web has just made our careers so much more interconnected. Just yesterday, I was on a Write the Docs caffeine hour chat with, I don't know, 10 other people in, in my Seattle area. We chatted for like an hour and a half and it was really fun. Like the, the conversation took off in some interesting and very helpful ways. And just during the conversation, I, I mentioned we got to talking about sports briefly. Somebody implemented a sports analogy in football and people brought up a post that I'd written that had like analogies from basketball and like several people actually remembered it. And I was like, I can't even believe people realize I had this post, much less read it and, and remembered. I bring this up because the web, whether you're sharing information through a blog, an online site, or interacting in one of these the doc spaces, there's so many ways to connect with other people. And I know this also builds into the open source movement to share yourself, to share your talents, your expertise. It's really what makes the career experience with the web so much more fun and fascinating to have all these connections with people. I really just encourage people to share more of themselves, you know, start a blog if you want or do something else. 
Uh, maybe it's a project or something, but there are many opportunities and it is definitely worthwhile. Yeah. To your point, I go back. I don't want to end on uh, the rate that Ox is great train, but I also want to end on the I'd rather be right in downtown <laughs> train is also great. I just think the amount of work that you've put out over the years, it doesn't surprise me that, you know, you throw a stone and hit a person in, in the tech world who cares about documentation and they're going to have run into your website at some point. And yeah, no, I just think the amount of work you've done. I saw you started a podcast back in 2006 or something. It, when you mentioned it had been around since 2006, I went back and looked at all the old posts. And I, <laughs> I also have some old, somewhat embarrassing posts on my blog, but I didn't find anything too embarrassing on yours. But I love the like podcast. Yeah, doing it before it was cool. <laughs> but no, just the amount of work that you've put in and your API.course is an obvious example, but just the blog for years and years, just providing so much perspective and value on the ecosystem. So yeah, I also appreciate a lot the, the work that you've put in. And I think it's had a big impact. And with that, I think we are getting to the end of our time here today, unfortunately. And so was there anything else that you wanted to kind of touch on or mention or plug that you're excited about? No, I mentioned this current series I'm working on about like, how do you translate the techniques, visibility, influence on the web into the workplace? I don't really know how that's going to turn out. That's what I'm currently trying to figure out. The effects of having my site on the web has been very tangible to me, but in the workplace, I feel like I, I'm still very invisible and I don't really have that same kind of impact. So I'm trying to figure out like, how do you take all this stuff that is known on the web and translate it into the workplace to have a similar kind of impact, not just on writers, but on the business unit around your PMs and your QA and your partner engineers and so on. I don't know if there's going to be a happy sort of a conclusion to that, or if I'll just be like, yep, there are two different worlds, but that's what I'm currently working on. Tom, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your expertise. And for people who want to know more about what Tom is doing, you could read his blog, which is iRatherBeWriting.com. And once again, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. 